there are times we are forced to reckon with the fact that for a long time we have thought we knew what we knew, only to discover later uh, how much yet we have to learn, right? It just, the more you, the older you get, the more that becomes true, the more that becomes a lesson that you have to reckon with, that the more you think you know, the more you come to understand how much more you have to learn. History is littered with examples of individuals who set forth on some grand crusade of some kind boldly and blindly and ended up in the shoals on the rocks. But you don't have to look for dramatic examples in history. I mean, we know that's true of our everyday lives, our everyday experience. You just, just think with me, how, what was it like for you? Go way back in your memory banks for some of us far more than others. What was it like to learn to tie a shoe? Or to teach someone to tie a shoe? I'm not sure which is more frustrating. Um, what was it like to, to learn to drive a car? Or to get a job, to hold a job, um, to go on that first date, or to do marriage and family. And in any of those, you oftentimes start off with this grand delusional idea, and it goes something like this. How hard can that be? How hard can that be? Only to, oftentimes not that far into the venture, discover how much more you have yet to find out and yet to discover. Well, that brings us to the theme of our, our sermon, uh, the message of the service this morning. Where are things going? Where are we heading? Uh, not just in terms of economic forecasts and not just in terms of sociological uh, projections, but where is the whole thing, this whole story going? Jesus speaks on this very directly, and it becomes rather clear that we need to reckon with the reality of how much more we have to learn, uh, how much, um, how little we seem to actually know and understand about this, and how much we need to grow in these things in terms of where this is going and how the story is going to ultimately end. And I, I think that's true of all of us here. I need to wrestle with these things humbly. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, this is in the midst of a long uh, teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, being what's referred to often as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, that's because it was taught, it took place there, the teaching on the Mount of Olives, just there to the east of uh, the city of Jerusalem. And if you're trying to find it, but Matthew, this is the first book in the New Testament, the first of our four Gospels that we have, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Uh, it is profound. It is mind and heart stretching, all of what Jesus says all the time, but it would seem most especially in these things there in Matthew 24 through 25. This is a short passage, and so much of the entirety of 24 through 25 is compressed here in verses 29 to 31 of Matthew 24. But this is where we're going to camp out here for just a little bit. Uh, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Hear now the word of God. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, would you put us there uh, in that small gathering of your disciples there on the Mount of Olives that day in the midst of a tumultuous week, so eventful in terms of the things that were done and said uh, just, at, just at this point uh, of the week. Um, minds racing and, and hearts churning, uh, questions just swirling uh, within their minds. Put us there. Uh, help us understand uh, what, is, what is generating their questions and even more so, uh, what is generating your answers your love for them and for us, and a desire that they would know uh, and we would know and have what we need uh, as we not just um, live in light of the past, but live in light of the future uh, here in the present. Uh, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your kindness. We pray that your spirit, the very spirit that miraculously worked through Matthew that converted tax collector, that disciple, that follower of yours, as uh, he was inspired in the deepest sense to write this gospel, that that same spirit that worked in and through him would be working in and through us now, that you would illumine our minds and hearts to understand, to really hear not just the what of this being said, but its implications for our everyday normal lives. Tomorrow morning, what difference does the coming of the Son of Man make for Monday morning? We pray in your name. Amen. The end is near. The end is near. No doubt those of you who have traveled to big cities uh, there in the downtown area, have seen the, the guy, the gal, walking around with the sandwich board, and, the, and the, the, it maybe even scrawled in, in, you know, hardly legible writing with a marker or a painting or a paintbrush. The end is near. Of course, it's normally, if you're seeing it in that context, it's uh, a religious impulse that's generating that message from that individual in that context. The end is is near. But you can hear messages like that from a, a secular impulse as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be a religious impulse. It can be a secular message as well. We are bombarded, actually, if you, if you think about it, with that very same message, but it just sounds a little bit different. Now, I'm going to give you some of the voices, and I'm not for a minute going to attempt to assess or weigh in on the, uh, oh, I don't know, the worthiness of, or the truthfulness of any of those messages. You're just, just recognizing the messages are there. So we are told we're warned of, of global warming that will create, um, obviously, increasing temperatures around the globe and, and, and problems with that and, and, and deserts and a shortage of the food supply. We are told, other voices tell us, that 
Uh, we're going to eventually run out of fossil fuels, and if we're not careful, we're going to have uh, certain hostile nations seize control of the markets and therein to manipulate everything in terms of the global economy. We are told that rogue nations and terrorists are going to get a hold of WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, and create the ultimate suicide bomb. Again, I'm not going to weigh in for a minute on any of those messages and whether or not we ought to listen to them to what degree we should. That's not my point at all. Just to say that when you think about it, that message is the end is near. So we're hearing that in different ways from all different corners, whether the dude with the sandwich board or the very smart columnist in the newspaper. Whatever it may be, we, we hear that all the time, which brings us to our text here in Matthew 24. Jesus, going back to where we were a couple weeks ago in the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus foretold the destruction, the fallen destruction of not just the city of Jerusalem, but the temple itself, and that very thing happened within just roughly 40 years, the very same thing in just the way that, that he described. And understandably, the disciples, Jesus foretells us, the disciples follow up with some, well, some concern, uh, as you can imagine. You see that expressed in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And that sets into motion everything that is then said in chapters 24 and 25. That question sets into motion this long answer that Jesus gives. Now, in the way the disciples mean their question, they mean that as, in essence, one event. That's what their understanding is. This would all be one event. But Jesus understands us. No, it's actually broken into two things when these things are going to happen and my coming is actually two different things, though joined in some way. He is, so he answers it with two horizons in mind. And you can see that as you move through carefully and thoughtfully through the, the, the chapters 24 and 25. Jesus answers with these two horizons. One, horizon one is the in, within their generation, that temple, yes, indeed, is going to fall, and stones are going to be just laid low upon the pavement. And you can go see those stones today upon that very pavement. But he also has in mind a second horizon, a distant horizon, and that is the day of his return, his coming. And that horizon is the one that he is speaking to here in our text this morning, verses 29 through 31, his coming, his second coming, his return. And the idea is simply this. Jesus is making very clear, lest, we have, lest you be thinking there be any ambiguity on the point. He is saying he's going to return. He is saying he is going to return just as surely as he came once in time and space, he is going to come again in time and space in the flow of real history. And he wants us to know what that day will be like. The day of his return is coming, and he wants us to know what that day will be like. And as you look at this text, three things come out very clearly about that day that we ought to know. And the first thing is that day is going to be turbulent. I'll unpack these terms as we go. But that day is going to be turbulent. Second, it's going to be resplendent. And thirdly, it's going to be triumphant, the day of his return. Turbulent, resplendent, 
and triumphant. Let's look at these in turn. Verse 29, it's going to be a turbulent day, a lot of shaking, much disturbance from the ground up and the heavens down. Verse 29, what does he say? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This, these are events that had long since been foreshadowed, long since been foreshadowed. This is hardly the first time you read of such things in the Bible, hardly. Now, this language, as Jesus speaks here, can possibly be taken literally. That is to say, creation and the foundations and the ceiling, if you will, of creation itself is being, going to be shaken and shaken hard. That's a possible way to take that, and certainly there is precedent for that kind of language in the Old Testament. But equally so, you can take it figuratively, because when the Old, Te when the Old Testament prophets would speak of the judgment to come upon the nations of the time, they would use language very much like this. So it could be literal. It could be figurative. It's likely both. It's likely both at the same time. Either way, or three ways, if you want to think in terms of three options there, literal, figurative, or a blending of the two, the point is that this event, this day, that has long since been foreshadowed will be fulfilled. This day that has long since been foreshadowed will be fulfilled in the coming of the Son of Man. And the idea being that all other shakings, all other days such as this, all other foreshadowings were meant to be but a hint, meant to be but a preview, meant to, be, to give us something of a glimpse of what was coming. Or put it this way, this is not just a day of judgment like there have been in so many other cases in years past. Jesus is speaking here of the day, the cataclysmic day of judgment, in which every power in all creation is going to be laid low. That day of his return is going to be a turbulent day. Everything is going to be shaken and deeply disturbed. two groups of people that need to reckon with this, two types of people that need to reckon with this message. And we're all in one of those groups. So to the powerful and the influential, to the high and mighty of this age, don't get comfortable Don't get settled. The second group, to those with little weight and pull, to those who, in the cynical eyes of the people of this world and the times in which we live, are deemed to be of little or no account, don't be envious. Don't get comfortable. Don't be envious because a turbulent day is coming when everything 
is going to be shaken to the foundations. The day of Jesus' return is sure it is coming. He wants us to know what it's going to be like. It's going to be a turbulent day. Moving on to the second point, it is also going to be a resplendent day. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Resplendent, meaning a shining, glorious splendor in which His coming, His presence is going to be revealed to all. It's going to be revealed to all, not as, it, not as it was before. Not as it was before when he came in obscurity, in which if you, if you wanted to find him, you had to seek him out. That's the way it was the last time. That's not the way it's going to be the next time, in which every tribe, every people, every person, going to see. And one way or the other, they're going to see. Not as it was before, but certainly as was said before. I'm playing with the words there to get your attention. Not as, not as it was before, but certainly as it was said before. And what I mean by that is you just go back a couple of verses. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the, the lar that larger section in Matthew 24. We didn't touch on this verses 27 to 28, but it's very plain what Jesus means here. These proverbial sayings that he's using. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, the second one oftentimes throws us as we're reading. It's like, that's kind of nasty. But the idea, you don't need to outthink it. If you take it as a couplet with the one that comes before about the flashing of the lightning, and no one can miss that, well, that's the, what, clearly what the meaning is regarding the vultures, being that anyone can just look out and see in a, from a great distance those vultures flying. There's nothing hidden about what's going on there. Well, that's the idea with, the, with those two proverbial uh, statements. Uh, this is going to be revealed to all, and in the course of that, there's going to be a revealing of all. It's going to be revealed to all, and in the course of that, there's going to be a revealing of all. There's mention made here of a mourning, a mourning. Now, it's possibly, could maybe refer to a repentance, a, a deep sorrow that comes upon those who see His coming, uh, uh, regretting truly in a deepest heartfelt sense uh, all their, their sin, their guilt, their shame, and past spurnings of the gospel. That's possible. But more likely in the context, what Jesus is referring here is not repentance, but grief and anguish because the time of repentance is gone. At that point, it's too late. It's simply too late and everything is being laid bare, and we are exposed before His sight. In that sense, it truly is a resplendent day 
a bright shining of His glorious splendor that will be visible to all and will make all things, including the deepest parts of us, visible. Now, there are two ways that can strike you. One is if you're really hearing what Jesus is saying, it ought to terrify you in one sense. It ought to absolutely take you to your knees in abject horror and fear because we all know, just to, we're not even asking the people around us, but just looking at the person in the mirror and having a conversation with them, we know something about our miserable record. We know that we don't even live up to our own standards to say nothing of God's standards. And we know that we, there's no way we're going to be able to withstand even a gentle critique to say nothing of divine condemnation. Not a man, woman, or child under the sun can withstand that. So if you're really hearing what Jesus is saying, there's a sense in which that ought to horrify and terrify you, this resplendent coming. But there's one other way that's completely different, and it's still doing justice to your sin, but it's reckoning with the fact that Jesus took the full brunt of it of all that you deserved. He was the blast shield that took every ounce of force, of judgment, that we is justly deserved due upon every one of us in this room, reckoning with the fact that he is not just a God of justice, but he is a God of grace. A God of grace. So where, again, there are but two ways to take this. If you're really hearing what Jesus says and not keeping this at arm's length, you're dealing with it. There's two ways to reckon with this. Terror or rest. Terror or rest. The day of his coming is real. He's going to return, and he wants us to know what it's going to be like, which takes us to the third and final point. Not only is this going to be a turbulent, resplendent day, but a triumphant day, a day of victory, a day of conquest. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other triumphant day. You see that in at least two senses, at least two senses here. First, there's a vast escort that's being alluded to here, and I don't doubt that no few of you in this room have heard teaching of some kind at some point about a rapture that is supposed to take place, and the idea being that Christians are going to be lifted up out of this world in an escape from a coming judgment and, and, and the, the horror of my, what might come with that, with the second coming of Jesus, and then he will come yet again at some time later. That's alluded to here, but not in the way I just described, and not in the way that is commonly taught, and I would add mistakenly taught. What Jesus is describing here is he's hinting at, he's hinting at something that's a bit more explicit in the Thessalonian letters. But what he's hinting at here is not an escape, but an entourage. 
an escort in which we are going to be lifted up, yes, as he comes down, very much as in the ancient world, when the, the uh, officials of a city would go out to meet a royal figure and escort that figure into their city. That's the sense in which we're going to be lifted up towards him as he comes down to take back what has been his all along. Not an escape, an escort, a triumphant, victorious entourage. That's the first sense, and we get this, this picture of triumph on that day. But not just that. That's the one that's hinted at. The one that's so obvious and explicit is the trumpet, this great trumpet that blasts forth, that will somehow be heard from, from earth out to the Andromeda galaxy and beyond. This trumpet, the, the idea being that in, in that time period, again, the, 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 the imagery is, is a gathering. The trumpet blast was meant to gather God's people. Now, sometimes that was to gather them for war. Sometimes that was to gather them to, to, to take cover and shelter because of an imminent battle that was about to, be, to come upon them. Or maybe, and in this case, to gather them for the accession of a king to be throned a coronation ceremony. The idea being the war is over and the king is being crowned. The war is over, the king is being crowned, the trumpets are being blasted, the people are being gathered. This is a triumphant day, a triumphant, victorious day that is being spoken of here in this escort and this trumpet. Now, I ask you, and maybe you're wondering, okay, that's kind of cool. I'm, 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 I'm getting this. What difference does that make tomorrow morning? Good question. Glad you're asking. Think with me just for a moment. You look to your left, you look to your right. You look in the newspapers, you look in your life. What do you see needs to be made right? What do you see in this world that needs to be made right? In the Inquirer weekend, just, just, I think it was Friday night, we were talking about how we live right now in this age, in this world, in what has been described as a life on the Jericho Road, an allusion to the parable of the Good Samaritan, meaning if we have but eyes to see, we can see the realities and the, the aftershocks of war and injustice and oppression and famine and natural disaster all around us. It's the Jericho Road. We can see all around us uh, family disintegration and disease and mental illness and physical handicaps, if we have but eyes to see. All around us, there is racism and crime and scarcity of resources and class warfare being ginned up all the time. But I have eyes to see. That's life on the Jericho Road. Well, here's the thing. The Christian, and I would add true, perspective on history and where things are going is all that is going to be made right. And the effects of it are all going to be rewound and undone. All that is sad is coming untrue. Jesus is going to return. And he wants us to know what that day is going to be like. 
He's not withholding that from us. He's making very clear that it's going to be a turbulent, resplendent, triumphant day. I ask you, how does all this land on you this morning? How does, how does this land on you this, this morning? Let me go further with that Jericho Road image, if I may. Not just thinking about the things that need to be right, made, things that need to be made right out there, but the things that need to be made right in here. And at this point, I'm thinking of, of the fear and the pride and the bitterness and the discontentment and the lust of my own heart and yours. Our people-pleasing, control-freaking, road-raging impulses and all that drives that. The good news is the king has come and is coming again and is expanding the, the extent and depth of his reign for as the curse is found. That's good news. It's beautifully captured uh, in, a, in, a, in a scene from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, first in the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you may be familiar with this. Aslan is something of this metaphorical figure of, of, a, of a Christ figure. Early on, the children, there in their time in, in the land of Narnia, meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and there they hear a prophecy, a stunning prophecy. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. That's Matthew 24 and 25. That's the promise. That's the assurance that we have. And Jesus is saying to his followers, to his disciples, then and now, live now in light of that. Live now in light of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we so easily fall into the trap of thinking that this is just how it's always going to be. And we're just stuck. And things are never going to change. And it's so hard for us to envision what you're saying here. We are so caught, caught up in just the daily normal turning of the pages of the story. But you're the author of the story, and you're telling us where it's going. We pray, we plead with you, you'd help us to remember, to know, and to hold to the promise and the assurance from the author as to how this plot line is unfolding and where it's moving to a certain and glorious end. And we ask that you'd help us to live in light of your appearing, not just the one that was before, but the next one. That you would make us into what you intend us to be, a people of hope, of living 
hope. We pray in your name.